Good morning, everyone. Welcome to episode three of the Dual Ministry Podcast. My name is Robert Foster. It is a pleasure to be here with you guys today. If you are new to this, well, like I just said, my name is Robert Foster. Welcome to the Dual Ministry Podcast. Um, this uh, this podcast comes on every Sunday. Um, I just got off of church, so I'm I'm ready to go. Gotten God's word a little bit, and I am ready ready to rumble. So, um, hope you guys are having a great day. Hope you guys attended a live stream church. If you haven't, I recommend doing so. Um, so at some point today, if there's an evening service, find one because going to church on Sundays is really, really important during this time. So today we're going to be talking about a book that I thoroughly enjoy. One of my favorite books of the Bible. It is called the book of Job. So we're just going to be going through, we're not going to be going through the whole book. We're just going to be going through an overview of the book of Job. So, um, you know, we're in the old Testament of Job, you know, but this book is a mental roller coaster. Now this book is one of the most sophisticated and mind bending works in the Bible. You know, this book has been designed to stimulate your mind and heart by raising huge questions about God's character and the meaning of human suffering. So, however, just so you know, no straightforward answers lie within. Rather, than, rather the reading is invited to ponder the pain and complaining of Job. And it, um, I have written down here Job's 1 through 3, or Job's chapter 1 through 3, Job chapter 19, and Job chapter 29 through 31. Um, the puzzling speeches of God, which is Job 38 through 41, and the surprise conclusion of the whole story in Job 42. Most people finish the book feeling unsure they got the point, but convinced they've experienced something profound. But there is one particular challenge that modern readers face when reading the book of Job, and that's the narrative introduction that gets the story moving. The strange conversation between God and Satan figure in Job 1 through 2 is often misunderstood in a way that derails readers from comprehending the main ideas of the book. So let's clarify a few things that will set you up to read this book with more understanding. So the first question I have pondered here is, who is this Satan? We are first introduced to Job as a blameless and upright man in Job 1.1, and then shown examples of extreme piety. He loves God and his family so much, he offers sacrifices for them, hypothetical sins of... For, uh, hi, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let me go back. He offers sacrifices for the hypothetical sins of his children in Job chapter 1 verses 2 through 7. This guy is incredible. All of a sudden, we're transported to basically God's divine command center, the heavenly throne room where God's executive staff reports for duty. This is a very familiar image in the Old Testament that describes God as the sovereign king over all creations. And you can see 1 Kings chapter 22 verses 13 through 23. Uh, Psalm 89 verses 5 through 8 and Psalm 103 verses 20 through 21. He's like a king who daily assembles his officers, surveys the land, and then sends them off for various missions, which is the context of Isaiah's commission in Isaiah 6, 1 through 8. So we're told in Job 1, 6 that God's subservient divine beings called the sons of God report for duty as usual and that one standing among them is the Satan. Now let's stop here. Who or what is the Satan? Let's first set the record straight. This word is not a proper name, like our modern translations that use the capital letter with an S in Satan. Might, might lead us to conclude. The Hebrew word Satan is a descriptive noun describing any person that stands opposed to or as an adversary to someone else. For example, King Solomon faced multiple invading enemies near the end of his reign. Hadad the Edomite and Rezon son of 
Elidia, of 1 Kings 11.11 and 11.23. Both of these men are called in Hebrews a Satan. That is an adversary. King David himself is called a Satan by the Philistines in 1 Samuel 29.4. The word Satan can be used to describe an accusing attorney in a courtroom. See Psalm 109.6-7. And pay attention to this one. The angel of the Lord is described as a Satan who opposes the infamous Balaam. See Numbers 22, 22, and 32. So even the angelic messenger who represents the will and authority of God himself can take on the function of a Satan. One conclusion from this short Hebrew word study is that a variety of people or heavenly beings can be described by the word Satan. This means that the Satan who appears in Job 1-2 through is not necessarily identical with a full-orbed evil being called by the same title in the New Testament. See, for example, in Mark 1-13. In fact, a heavenly figure called the Satan appears only twice in the Old Testament. Both stories take place in the heavenly courtroom where a good guy stands for God and his staff is, and is then accused by the one who the one opposed or the Satan. In Zechariah 3, 1-5, the Satan is a figure in the divine throne room accusing the high priest of Israel for being guilty of sin, symbolized by dirty clothes. And God's response is that Israel and his representative priest are no longer guilty because Israel's exile has been sufficient punishment for breaking the covenant with God. See Zechariah 1-2. through now that the exile is over, God is giving Israel a new chance, so to speak, symbolized by giving the high priest a new clean set of clothes. In this context, the Satan is not evil or sinister. Rather, he represents the just and right accusation that Israel is guilty before God, and God counters this member of his staff by saying that Israel stands forgiven. So here's the next question. So what's the point of the Satan? Oh, I lost my place. Something similar is happening in Job 1-2, through except the nature of the Satan's opposition is different. When God presents Job as a stellar example of human virtue and piety, this, the Satan rises the, raises the possibility that Job's good behavior could be explained in a very different way in Job chapter 1, 8-9. You know, isn't it possible that Job's virtuous behavior is motivated by selfishness? If Job knows that good behavior brings divine blessing and abundance then we could have all we could have all kinds of reasons for being blameless and upright if that were the case then job's goodness isn't really that good and even more importantly it calls into question god's basic policy of rewarding those who honor and follow him does job fear god for nothing the satan replied have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has you have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land that was job chapter 1 verses 9 through 10 this line is crucial for understanding the main ideas being explored in the book of Job. Hebrew Bible scholar John Walton puts it this way. The Satan challenges God's policy of rewarding the righteous by suggesting that it corrupts their motives and proves them to be less righteous. This accusation gives the book an interesting twist. For while we might be inclined, along with Job and his friends, to spend time asking why righteous people suffer, the Satan turns the question upside down and asks why they should prosper. In this way, the book gives us the answers we need to, to, to a question we rarely think to ask, rather than the answers we thought we wanted. The big question most people walk away with after reading Job 1-2 through 2 is, why did God allow Job to undergo such suffering? 
It's crucial to realize that the Satan is not a sinister figure bent on hurting Job, and God isn't a cruel gambler given into Satan's evil desires. That's the wrong story, but one that is commonly imported into the book. So Job is not about good versus evil. The book of Job is ancient Israelite wisdom literature, and its purpose isn't to teach us about how Satan and God make bets and leave innocent people's fates hanging in the balance. Rather, it begins with a typical day in the divine oval office, and the topic of God's just operation of the cosmos is put on the table. Is it really wise or just for God to reward the righteous? What if it corrupts their motives? It raises the question of whether God should reward all good deeds and punish all bad ones, if he does it all. Is it possible that people could experience horrible pain and not deserve it? Can very selfish, awful people really succeed in God's good world? If so, what does that tell me about the character and purpose of God? Can I draw conclusions about God's character based off of my observations of the moral under the universe? Again, John Walton says, The scene in heaven is not trying to explain why Job or any of us suffer. Job is never told about that scene, nor would we have derived any comfort from it. As I... Um... The question frequently arises, what sort of God is this who uses his faithful ones as pawns and bets with the devil? I would suggest that, his question, that this question is based on a fundamental misunderstanding of the prologue. The scene in heaven, like the speeches of Job's friends, is part of the literary design of a thought experiment to generate discussion about how God ru- runs the cosmos. The prologue, the prologue is not trying to teach us how Job got into such a difficult situation or what angelic beings do or do not have access to God's presence. The message of the book is offered at the end in, in the speeches of God, not in the opening scenario, which only sets up the thought experiment. The book is focusing on how God works in the world, not teaching us about how things work in heaven. The book of Job introduces us to a man who, by God's own admission, is blameless and upright and who suffers for no reason. Can such a thing happen in, the God, in, God, in God's good world? This is the theological and ethical question being explored in the poetic dialogues to follow in Job chapter 3 through chapter 27. So the character of the Satan has no power over Job or God. So here's the real takeaway. You know, through all of this, here's the real takeaway. A helpful way of understanding the book of Job was offered by a Jewish scholar. Offered by a Jewish scholar. He proposed that the book is exploring three claims made about God and Job, but only two can be true at the same time. God is just and good. God's character compels him to always act justly for the good of others. The retribution principle, God has ordered the world so that good deeds are rewarded and evil deeds are punished. Job's innocence. Job has done nothing to deserve his suffering. The whole argument of Job's friends is that God is just and good, by which they mean that. God has ordered the moral universe to run by the retribution principle on this account. Job's suffering must therefore be the result of some evil for which he's been being punished. So Job's argument is that he has done nothing wrong to warrant his suffering as a punishment. And we the readers know that he's right. The author said so in Job 1.1, and God said Job was innocent in 2.3. Job also holds that that God runs the world by means of the retribution principle, which leads him to the brink of an awful conclusion. Maybe God is not just or good, or even worse, maybe God is incompetent at running the universe. Job and his friends run around 
and run around, run round and round on the hamster wheel of their dialogues for 24 chapters, never coming to any res- resolution about their debate, which opens up the possibility that they are all wrong. Perhaps God is just and good, and Job is innocent. Maybe what needs to be ex- examined is their assumption that all suffering is a form of divine punishment and all abundance is a form of reward. This is the real focus of the book of Job. And you can see how the heavenly scene of Job 1-2 through sets us up perfectly to focus on these difficult theological and ethical issues. The character of the Satan... Uh, I lost my place again. The character of the Satan has no power over Job or God. He's like a cardboard cutout character in the story whose only role is to raise the questions that are the real focus of this book. Those questions are highlighted for us in the dialogue of Job and his friends, but not, but never resolved. It's only in the central poem of Job 28 and God's, and in God's speeches, Job 33 through 41, that we discover the real message of the book. So after enduring the long-winded words of Elihu in Job 32 through 37, God himself speaks up in response to Job in a series of speeches that form the climax of the book. So far, Job and so far in Job 38 through 41, God offers two responses that first offer a virtual tour of the cosmos in Job 38 through 39. God asks Job all of these impossible questions. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Have you ever in your days commanded the morning light? Where does light live or where does darkness reside? Can you lead out a, a, a constellation in its season? And of course, the correct response to all of these questions is for Job to say, No, I don't command the universe. I don't know the answer to any of these questions. No, I've only lived a short time. So here's God's first point. The point seems to be this. Job claimed that God has fallen asleep at the wheel and running the universe. And because of this divine neglect, he's had to endure unjust suffering. You know, God's response is indirect, and it shows how the attention is actually on every single detail of the operation of the universe. In fact, God is privy to all kinds of perspectives and details that Job has never even imagined and never will. Following the cosmic tour, God takes Job on a corresponding virtual tour of part of the world he actually does inhabit, the earth. In Job 38, 39, in Job's 38, 39 through 39, 30. This is Job's chapter 38 verse 39 through chapter 39 verse 30 he asks job if he's ever provided food for lions or seen an isolated mountain goat give birth no well perhaps job understands the feeding patterns of wild donkeys that roam the hills or ostriches that strand that their strange ways of caring for their young maybe job and god can have a stimulating conversation about job's knowledge of war horses and the aerodynamics of an eagle soaring on thermal air currents as it turns out job doesn't know as much as he thought even about the world he lives in and should be familiar with. At the end of God's invitations to dialogue, Job comes up short in his first response. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hands on, hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken, and I will not answer even twice, and I will add nothing more. That was Job chapter 40, verses 3-5. through five. God has made his first point. Job's many accusations of divine neglect or incompetence have failed. As it turns out, God is intimately familiar with every molecule and creature in his world and knows more about them than job can comprehend this is an important moment in the story so far i gotta get 
I gotta get a quick drink of water. My throat's getting a little dry. <laughs> Alright. Where was I? This is an important moment in the story so far. Whatever reasons God has for having allowed Job's suffering, neglect is not a viable option. Job never does find out why he, why he suffered, and neither does the reader of the book of Job. The goal of the book was never to offer us that information. Rather, the first divine speech makes clear that God does know everything that transpires in his world, and his perspective on the universe has a wider range than any human will ever understand. When Job critiqued God's knowledge and ability, it was based on the limited horizons of his life experience. His brain has only a, f- a finite capacity to understand cause and effect from his point of view. God's perspective is infinitely broader, which means he may allow or orchestrate events that from one perspective look morally suspicious or just plain wrong. However, from a wider perspective, those same events look entirely different. It's similar, it's similar to a child observing their parent through a chair at a window to shatter it. For a six-year-old's point of view, this is precisely the kind of behavior that would earn a timeout, grounding or worse. But if the parent knows there's a smoke coming from the adjacent room and that this window was the only way out, all of a sudden the broken window becomes a life-saving escape route. The parent has a wider range of available information that makes the same action, throwing a chair out the window, become the morally necessary, morally necessary thing to do. This seems to be the point of God's first speech. There may be evil and suffering in God's good world that from one perspective may seem needless, tragic, and unjust. And that one perspective is our perspective. But from a wider vantage point, there may be a vast network of factors that make the same tragedy fit into a larger cause-effect pattern that brings about the saving of many lives. And that's God's perspective. It's impossible for any human to know such thing or have such a perspective. This means all of our claims to evaluate God's rule over human history are always limited and will therefore fall short. I don't have a wide enough vantage point to accuse God of incompetence and never will. This isn't a particularly pleasant fact to realize for Job or any of us. It's an an inescapable reality of being human. We are finite and our brains and sensory abilities are not only designed are not designed to take any information necessary to make evaluations of, of God's choices. We're not God. We're human. So move on to job to God's second point. After Job confesses his arrogance, God responds again, this time inviting Job to take up the divine throne and run the universe for a day. Let Job enforce the strict retribution principle he thinks God ought to use in directing the cosmos. Clothe yourself with honor and majesty. Pour out your anger to overflowing and look on everyone who is proud and make him low. Look on everyone who is proud and humble him and tread him the wicked and tread down the wicked where they stand. That's Job chapter 40 verses 10 through 12. Job will find the task impossible. It would require a second by second micromanagement approach that would essentially result in no more human beings on the planet. Job doesn't know what he's asking for when he demands that God uses the strict principle of retribution towards to reward every good deed and punish every bad one. In theory, it sounds right, but in execution, it would create a universe where no human would ever have a chance for trial and error, or more importantly, for growth and change. This leads to God's final response. He introduces Job to two fantastic creatures, one called the behemoth in Job chapter 40 verse 15, and the other, the Leviathan in Job 41.1. Both are Hebrew words spelled with English letters. Behemoth is a common word for domesticated animals like cow in Jeremiah 5.14, goats in Leviticus 1.2, or even horses in, the, in 
Nehemiah 2.12. But in this case, the word describes a river creature who lives in the reeds with a gigantic tail and thick bones. It sounds like a hippo with a dinosaur tail. And since the mid-1600s, this has been a common interpretation. It's, it likely refers to an animal that was little known to the author. And so was able to make to take a mythical proportions. Perhaps it refers to a now extinct animal. We'll, we'll simply never know for certain. Knowing this specific animal will not get us closer to God's point in bringing up Behemoth in the first place. God's purpose is mentioning this in mentioning this creature is its meaning. Here is a gigantic and dangerous beast that lives in splendid isolation from any human interference. God loves it. It's called the chief of God's ways in the world in Job chapter forty nineteen. It's just a set-up creature, leading us to an even more fantastic and powerful beast. The Leviathan. God loves to brag about Leviathan. I cannot keep silent about his limbs. In Job chapter 40, verse 12. We know from the many other biblical and ancient or ancient near eastern text that Leviathan was a common figure in the people's imaginations of that day. It lived in the deep oceans leaving a huge wake of churning froth in Job chapter 41 verses 31 through 32. Its skin was impenetrable to human weapons. Job chapter 41, 15 through 17. And, and it breathed fire. Sounds like a dragon. <laughs> like behemoth, we know the Leviathan was a creature living within the boundaries of the real and mythical for ancient people. Elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible and ancient B Babylonian literature, Leviathan is a mythical symbol of violence and chaos in God's world. And you can see Psalm 74 verse 14 and Isaiah 27 verse 1. This concept certainly emerged from the sporadic co contact ancient sailors had with immense dangerous ocean creatures that were little known and greatly feared. The biblical authors, including the author of Job, had done deep theological reflection on the existence of such creatures in God's world. Leviathan poses no threat to God and is certainly not a rival God, as the Egyptians believed. All of this background helps us understand God's point in bringing up Leviathan. God asked Job if he is able to pull in a Leviathan with a fishing pole or take it home as a pet. God counsels Job to do no such thing because Leviathan is the kind of animal that will bite off your arm without a second thought. And notice this important point. Leviathan is not evil or bad. Nowhere in this speech is Leviathan called wicked or unfortunate or described as a sad consequence of sin or the fall. Just the opposite. Leviathan is beloved by God, a wonderful creature of great power and might. God is proud of this animal and apparently thinks it belongs in this world. Just don't touch it or it will annihilate you. This is fascinating. Here's a creature that will ruin your life if you happen upon it, but God loves it. Why does God even bring this up at all? Apparently God's world is ordered enough for the human project to flourish, but chaos has not been eradicated entirely from God's world. The Tohu Vavohu, Hebrew for formless and void, the Hebrew for formless and void. That's a fun word to say. Tohu vavohu. It is. Uh, it means formless and void. Wilderness waste, uh, uh, which is in Genesis 1-2. Wilderness wasteland of Genesis 1 wasn't eliminated when God made the world. Rather, a space for garden order was carved out and given over to humans who were commissioned to spread the divine order further out. Leviathan, Leviathan is out there, raw and dangerous, and you just might encounter it. It has the power to wreak havoc on your life, but that, but what you cannot conclude from a run-in with Leviathan is that God is punishing you or that this creature is evil. Neither in the case you just bummed into Leviathan and it unleashed chaos, tooth and claw into your life and your body. So the book of, so this is the main point here. 
The book of Job invites us to trust God's wisdom when we encounter suffering rather than trying to figure out the reason for it. So this is the overall point. Hebrew Bible scholar John Walton puts it in this way in his commentary on Job. God's answer to Job does not explain why righteous people suffer because the cosmos is not designed to prevent righteous people from suffering. Job questioned God's design and God responded that Job had insufficient knowledge to do so. Job questioned God's justice and God responded that Job needs to trust him and that he should not arrogantly think that God can be domesticated to conform to Job's feeble perceptions of how the cosmos should run. God asks for trust, not understanding, and states the cosmos is founded on his wisdom, not his justice. Human pain and suffering does not always happen as a clear consequence of anyone's sin. There may be a reason, but there may not be. God himself said that Job's suffering was not warranted for any reason. The conversation with the Satan certainly did not provide a reason. That dialogue simply set the stage for the real question of the book. Does God operate the universe according to the principle of retribution? The answer to this story is no. Sometimes terrible things happen for for reason, for no reason discernible to any human. The point is that God's world is very good, but it's not perfect or always safe. It has order and beauty, but it also but it's also wild and sometimes dangerous, like the two fantastic creatures he avows. So back to the big question of Job or of Job's or anyone's suffering. Why is there suffering in the world? Whether from earthquakes or wild animals or from one another. God doesn't explain why. He says we live in an incredibly complex, amazing world that at this stage at least is not designed to prevent suffering. That's God's response. Job Job challenged God's justice and God responded that Job doesn't have sufficient knowledge about our complex universe to make such a claim. Job demanded a full explanation from God and what God asked Job for is to is trust in his wisdom and character. So Job responds with humility and repentance. He apologizes for accusing God of injustice and acknowledges that he's overstepped his bounds. All of a sudden, the book concludes with a short epilogue in Job 42. First, God says that the friends were wrong. Their ideas about God's justice were too simple, not true to the complexity of the world or God's wisdom. Then God says that Job has spoken rightly about him. This is surprising. However, can't, however, can't apply to everything Job said. Even though Job drew hasty and wrong conclusion, God still approves of Job's wrestling and how he approached God honestly with all his emotion, only wanting to talk to God himself. God says that the right way to, pro- to process through these issues is through the struggle of prayer. The book concludes with Job having his health, family, and wealth restored. Not as a reward for good behavior, but simply as a generous gift from God, and that's the end. So the book doesn't unlock the puzzle of why bad things happen to good people. Rather, it does invite us to trust God's wisdom when we encounter suffering, rather than trying to figure out the reason for it. When we search for reasons, we tend to either simplify God like the friends, or, like Job, accuse God based on limited evidence. The book invites us to honestly bring our pain and grief to God and to trust what he, that he cares, realizing that he knows exactly what he's doing. The book of Job is fantastic. And I just went over just a little bit of it. The book of Job is full of so much. And every time I read the book of Job, I always get this concluding thought. You know, we, we go through stuff every day. You know, we go, you know, we can't go through as much as Job did. He lost his family. He lost his riches. He lost his livestock. You know, he lost his basically his good looks because he got boils and all that stuff on his skin. He lost his health. 
I mean, this man went from having everything to having nothing. And of course, he questioned God, but at the end, he restored his faith back in God. So when we go through hard times, don't question it. Instead, keep your faith in God because he will get you through it. And I love it because during this time, we're we're all going through a hard time right now. This world is going through a hard time right now. But if we trust in God, he will get us through it. Just keep your faith and trust in Christ. The book of Job is fantastic. If you have time to read it, read the whole thing. But, um... But yeah, keep your faith in Christ. And if I had to title this in any way, if I had to title this um, podcast, which I probably will title this, keep your faith in Christ. Keep your faith in God and trust in God. Or mainly trust in God. So that has been just a short overview of the book of Job. There's so much more in Job, but we would be here all day. (laughs) <laughs> but um there's just so much in job that it's, it's, it's just such a great book so if you have time to read it one day or or a few days during your bible reading time read it is fantastic so that is it and speaking of trusting god a little segue next week our next week's podcast me and kenzie will be getting on here we'll be talking about what does it look like to trust god I know it was a little nice little segue there, (laughs) but next week we're going to be talking about what it truly means to trust Christ and to trust God. So I am so glad you guys joined me tonight or this morning, afternoon, whenever it is that you are listening to this. Um, I'm so, so glad that I'm able to, um, that God is allowing me the technology to do this and just to communicate with you guys through this method. Again, if you need anything from me at all, Um, just text me, DM me on Instagram, whatever, Snapchat me, you know, whatever it's, it's, you know, if you need me at any time, I'm always here. And that goes for everyone here at dwell ministries. We're always here. So just to close this out, I will do a quick prayer and then y'all can get on with y'all's day. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day you've given us, Lord. I thank you just for giving us this opportunity to open your word and to just learn, learn about, learn a little more about Job and just, uh, Not only the amazing God-fearing man he was, but also how to trust God, how to trust you, Lord. And God, I pray as we go out, go throughout the rest of our Sunday and the rest of our week and the rest of our, you know, time in quarantine, Lord, that we just strive to get closer to you, God. I thank you for everything you do for us. And it's your name I pray. Amen. Amen and amen. Well, I love all of you guys. I hope you guys have a fantastic rest of your day and your week. I will see you guys Monday, which would be tomorrow, if you're listening to this tonight, um, for uh, the morning devotion. And then we will get on, you know, um, we'll have the morning devotion for the rest of the week. We'll have, we're going, again, a reminder, this Saturday, we're going to be going live again on Instagram at, at 6.30, 7 o'clock, about 7 o'clock. So excited about that. And the next Sunday, we're going to be talking about diving more into the word, really trying to figure out what it means to trust God. So that's that. That's the stuff coming up. So I love you guys. This has been Robert Foster. Um, I love you guys so much, and I will see you guys next time.